0: A co-lead within Omnicom, which is the world's biggest marketing and advertising agency. I was born and raised in Shropshire, which is where my home is. Uh, I spent a couple of years in retail banking, spent 10 years as an infantry officer. So what,
1: why did you leave it? It feels like you were still young uh, when, when you left, what, what was the reason?
0: I I didn't choose to, so I think I always had that bug in me that one day I might like to run my own business. How do we bring to the centre a set of values and ethics which transforms the way in which business operates in society? I went to see my then boss, obviously the Prince of Wales, and uh, I explained to him at the the beginning of the year that I had decided to move on because I had a long notice period and um he wasn't best pleased the first one came out in 2017 uh, which was called the power of purpose and that really was transformational in terms of both the business my reputation it helped shape a lot of the language in the uk over the last couple of years i've become a little bit concerned about how purpose could be mistakenly seen just as a
1: marketing campaign i've had the pleasure to get to know john hanging out on Clubhouse together. The book launch, probably one of my favorite book launches ever in, in lockdown, um, MC Hammer was there. Yeah. I mean, uh, I got I got to talk yeah. to MC Hammer.
0: So this is all due to Clubhouse. Well, within 24 hours, he'd reached out to me across Twitter, he, MC and I are connecting off Clubhouse in different forms. We find that we're both born in the same year. We both served in the military because he used to be in the US Navy. And we both seem to have, uh, you know, different similar views on things.
1: Hi, John. It's wonderful to have you back on the podcast. I'm really excited to hear your life story today. Would you mind perhaps for those that didn't listen to the original podcast with you, uh, perhaps telling the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do and uh, what we should know about you?
0: Well, thanks, Simon. It's, it's great to be back. Uh, thank you for that introduction. So I currently have a portfolio of interests. I co-lead within Omnicom, which is the world's biggest marketing advertising agency, a group of nine agencies acting as a consortium to meet client needs that are digital, marketing, PR, advertising and creative. But I only do that half my week. The rest, I'm a non-exec on four different businesses. I also have a lot of philanthropic activity. Um, previously, I'm, I was born and raised in Shropshire, which is where my home is. Uh, I spent a couple of years in retail banking, spent 10 years as an infantry officer, then came out and worked at the interface between business and society. Uh, spent about 20 years in that space, 10 years of which was with the Prince of Wales and his organisations helping uh, inspire business to be more responsible. And then in 2010, I created my own agency until selling that and moving into Omnicom about four years ago. So a bit of a check had passed, not good or bad, but across the sectors, public sector, private sector and non-profit sector. And I'm very pleased to be here.
1: Well, as we are an entrepreneurial-focused podcast trying to teach people entrepreneurship or give them insights if they are already one, perhaps we can start with your own agency uh, as a middle way point, which I, I, from my record, you started in 2010. Um, and, and so tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. how that came about and what made you different and, and how you how you built that company.
0: Sure. So... The, the back story to this, I guess, is also my family upbringing because both my parents and both sets of grandparents were in business. So I grew up amongst in a small town in Shropshire where not only were they involved in business, but actually lots of my relatives were. They had their own shops, retails, farms and things like that. So I think I always had that bug in me that one day I might like to run my own business. But the route had taken me in a different direction. So I was one of the uh, leading protagonists of corporate social responsibility, CSR, as we would call it. And I was doing that as managing director of the Prince of Wales's personal programs, which engaged, you know, the big global and uh, UK-based footsie com- companies to look at the positive impact of their, their, their business on society. But in 2008, 2009, we saw the outcome of the financial crisis. We saw that businesses that perhaps had been ticking a lot of boxes Of being good in the CSR world, actually had been behaving pretty appallingly in terms of the lack of responsibility around some of the rest of their incentivization, their products and their services. And that led, you know, almost to the complete collapse of the global financial system. Um, So I got a little bit disillusioned with the uh, agenda of CSR, felt there was something that could go beyond that. We didn't call it purpose in those days. We were thinking post-CSR, how do we bring to the centre a set of values and ethics which transforms the way in which business operates in society? But it made me really think that this was the time, um, perhaps a little bit late in life in comparison to a lot of people, but this was the time for me to try and branch out um, and set up my own agency. So I set it up in 2009, 2010 as one of the first purpose-specific agencies, even though, as I say, we weren't using that language. But what made it different, I suppose, was actually the fact that I'd come from that history of being in the interface between business and society. Uh, I had a good reputation a good black book, which allowed me to go in and talk really about exploring the next stage with with business to understand how best they could perform better and build out their reputation, etc, in a more authentic way. So, so the business came about because of the financial crisis, a change in my thinking, and that sort of long-standing desire to see if I could prove that I could also create a business in my own right.
1: What were the first few things you did to, to make that business real? Well,
0: I mean, obviously, there's the practical aspects of creating a sort of, uh, creating the limited company and all of that sort of thing, but I suppose (laughs) the first thing was getting my first client, which was slightly an odd and different one, because I went to see my then boss, obviously, the Prince of Wales, and uh, I explained to him at the the beginning of the year that I had decided to move on because I had a long notice period. And um, he wasn't best pleased, you know, he'd sort of seen me around for a decade by that stage. And, uh, you know, we'd done quite a lot of things together. And so I had another sort of meeting a few weeks later where he turned around and decided, I don't know exactly what you're going to do, but I'm going to be your first client. Now, the moment you get the Prince of Wales as a client, it sort of focuses the mind in exactly, well, how is this going to manifest itself? And so I had to think about the different client groups, which I hadn't really. I knew that I was wanting to advise business on moving beyond CSR, as I just talked about. But I also realised probably with the Prince stepping forward that I also knew a lot of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals who could get advice on their philanthropy and ensuring that their impact in the world was better. So they became my second client group. And the third client group was my natural knowledge of nonprofits and charities, who then formed the third part of the business, which was advising them on being better able to get support from both corporates and from philanthropists. And when those three audience groups came together in my mind, I realized that if I could sit at the middle of those three, and not only give them advice independently, but perhaps get them collaborating, that would be the essence of the business. Yeah.
1: And did you, um, you know, what was your first hire? How did you, what infrastructure did you go about building?
0: Hmm. So in in the very first iteration of the business, I should say the business sort of transformed slightly with different partners after about 18 months, two years, there's a lesson in that. But the first iteration was that I had actually a group of individuals who proved to be really the backbone of the business right the way through until the time I exited. And these were women returners. So actually, I, I really built the business a combination of women who had gone off and had children and wanted to come back after a couple of years into an employment space, but didn't necessarily want full time and didn't want to have to be stuck in an office all the time. So they wanted flexibility and they wanted part-time work. And these were people that I'd worked with before. I knew how efficient they were. They'd been in the Prince's Charities um, set up. And so that was the one component part of building the first staff team. And the second was young people coming straight from university or straight from school and college who I took in as paid apprenticeships or had recommended to me, um, you know, certain parents would, you know, frankly, through the network said, look, their children had, you know, got the capacity. So I combined um, basically women returners with experience, with a desire to work on this type of work, but with flexibility alongside younger full-time interns. And then they turned into proper members of staff who really had the appetite, were you know, keen to get into their first jobs, and that combination was a great way of building the team out um,
1: from, from day one. Now, you've written quite a few books, and uh, why don't you tell uh, people listening a little bit about the books you've written in the past?
0: Yeah, so, so I've just recently published or have published the fourth book, although, really, I suppose the, the two main ones. The first one came out in 2017. Uh, which was called The Power of Purpose. And that really was transformational in terms of both the business, my reputation. It helped shape a lot of the language in the UK particularly, because it wasn't really until about 2016 that we started using the word purpose in the business context. And The Power of Purpose got to number three at WH Smiths, was an Amazon top 10, although that's pretty easy to achieve, frankly, but it was a Forbes top 15 leaders a week. So that did extremely well and raised and set out a number of theories and a number of practical illustrations of how purpose in business could prosper. And then over the last couple of years, I've become a little bit concerned about how purpose could be mistakenly seen just as a marketing campaign or just as a a PR initiative, rather than at the core of how business does its uh, business. Um, And so myself and a uh, co-author and friend have just written a book called Truth Be Told, which is how Um, Authentic truth and how authentic communications can work in the purposeful age. So it really addresses the risk of purpose going wrong. What might be construed as purpose wash, where a company might jump on a bandwagon or say or do something, um, and it's really not authentic to the business. So that's the latest one that's just come out,
1: and And, that's going
0: great guns as well.
1: Yeah, it's. I have to say, anybody listening, I, I love. All of John's books. You, you guys, uh, the links are below. Uh, you can you can buy them, uh, and I suggest you do. I really think that um, if you if you're listening to this podcast and you're probably interested in purpose, um, and I think you'll get a lot from from uh, John's work. I, I guess um, I wanted to go back further. I know that you were a British Army officer. Um, I'm, I'm interested uh, as someone. I, I never went to the army. My father was in the R A F actually, but um, I feel like. A lot of people today, going into the army isn't, isn't something they think about. And uh, it, it does seem to me that, that that experience of going into the army is very valuable. Maybe you could share a little bit with the people listening what, what you feel you took from from the 10 years that you were in the British army.
0: Well, I mean, I have to say, of course, I come from a different a different era. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I'm talking about going to the army in the early 1980s and uh coming out you know in the early 1990s which uh, a lot of people listening to this probably weren't even born but i think the first context to bear in mind was that the time i was growing up you know i was growing up in a rural county in england there was no such thing as the internet there were, you know it was a fairly closed uh society in many ways you didn't really venture out particularly we hadn't by that stage had lots of access to free not to free to cheap overseas holidays and things like that you know i mean actually it was uh, very localised, very parochial. And the thing that the army gave for me was, was a number of things. One is it took me out of you know, my old sort of upbringing and my old you know, family base. I mean, it took me all around the world. It gave me an extraordinary set of experiences over that period. But most importantly, it, um, it, you know, it taught me things that I would apply for the, for the next 40 you know, odd years. So um, the things that I learned firstly was that you know, it taught me to communicate i mean i was fortunate to go through the royal military academy of sandhurst get my commission and suddenly at the age of 21 you're expected to not only stand in front of of men who are older than you and and obviously lead them and command them but you've also got to actually earn their respect you've got to be able to assess situations you've got to come up with plans you know there's a there's a lot to it but you're trained and you know if you've got the talent for that type of thing then it's a great it's a great basis And in particular, alongside the ability to communicate, what the army gave me as an infantry officer is that, I mean, people don't quite appreciate, but of course, the army is very good at selecting different types of people to go into different types of units and roles. You know, I was never going to be an engineer or a sort of technical type officer. But my ability and interest to sort of explore what's over the hill, uh, to go where perhaps you don't have all the information or to be dropped into chaotic situations and then you know, create a plan and clarity and come up with the ability to, to lead people through it. That was something was my natural inclination, which they then gave me the training to, to practice. So when I came out of the army, um, I just had to reapply that into whatever role I wished to. So I found that the ability to communicate, but most importantly, the ability to go into often chaotic situations or absorb a lot of information, come up with a plan and then be able to articulate and communicate that and take people with you. That has served me so well for the last almost thirty years since I've been out of the army, um, and it was a great—I mean, it matured me, no doubt. You know, I think when I went into the army, I was much more naive. I'd had a sheltered, relatively sheltered upbringing. You know, the next minute, I was all over the world seeing different things, but also learning from my soldiers who came from inner cities and things like that, which were entirely different experiences to that which I'd had. So, uh, I owe the army a great deal, and uh, I was—I was very sad to leave it.
1: So what, why did you leave it? It feels like you were still young uh, when, when, when you left. What, what was the reason?
0: Well, I, I didn't choose to. Um, so, you know, it actually at the time it was devastating because actually we talk about purpose through your podcast, etc. But um, I had found my purpose in life and my purpose was to be a British Army officer. And so I had at least another eight years to serve and I could have probably extended then. I was well thought of. I was captain. I had particular roles and experience that had put me on a certain trajectory. Um, But uh, what happened was we won the Cold War. So there was a peace dividend, and the British government decided to cut the army by 47,500 people. People forget this. They didn't really absorb it at the time, because unlike closing down mining or steel or something like that, you know, the army's dispersed around the world. And You know, I mean, almost fifty thousand people were made redundant. You know, basically fifty thousand men, mainly. Um, But they were made redundant over a period of about two and a half, three years. But for me, I remember getting. It was totally unexpected. Uh, Very few of us actually applied for redundancy, and those of us that were seen to be on a trajectory to command and and do well, we were just devastated. I, I remember going home the night that I'd been given the paper. Um, and I walked back to my married quarter. I'd married my, you know, my, my wife uh, was still at work. I walked into our married quarter, given to us by the army, bearing in mind our social life was with the army, our friends were in the army, all my sport was with the army, everything. And, uh, you know, frankly, I sat on the stairs and I just wept because my entire sense of purpose had gone and my sense of identity had gone. Um, so it was devastating, but I had to, you know, pull myself together, so to speak, and think. Well, I now have another mission, and my mission is to convert myself into a civilian and uh, see what I'm going to do with this stuff and see where I'm going to end up. So, yes, it was. I mean, I it was devastating at the time, but I have to say, uh, actually, some of my friends who were not selected, um, or people that you know, I have a brother-in-law who served on longer. He was in a different regiment, etc. They came out much later and probably found it a little bit harder to adjust. You know, I came out at thirty-one uh, instead of coming out at sort of forty, and that probably served me well.
1: Mm. Yeah, I uh, well, I just I'd never realised that. I I remember uh, I, I was probably about eighteen uh, in nineteen ninety-four, something like that. Uh, but I remember the army being cut, and I remember lots of people returning and. It's interesting. It's, an interesting. it's an interesting sense of you love what you do, but you can no longer do it. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? That's kind of a crazy concept. You think if you love something, well, I mean, no one can stop you doing it. But it's not like you're allowed to walk around with a gun and uh, protect things well, without permission well, to do so, right? Well, I mean,
0: a lot of us, well, that's true. I mean, you know, a lot of us actually could have done it. We could have carried on because a lot of us were being sought as, uh, you know, some of the Arab Gulf states. Wanted to recruit us, so some of my friends went into the and to be military advisors and trainers across the Middle East,
1: private some army kind of Africa. model.
0: Um, well, the Middle East more so uh, was state armies. So you know, I, I've got f- former colleagues who are still they spent twenty or thirty years now working as civilian advisors and trainers in Middle East armies. There's a tradition of that with British officers. Uh, a lot of people went into private protection post the Iraq war. So I had a lot of friends become uh, armed security personnel for various mm. organisations in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but I, I was of the conclusion that, and I was also married, which is slightly different, but I was always the person that didn't look backwards so I did get a couple of those offers. And also I got the offer to join the reserve forces. So a lot of my friends went into the reserve forces and then almost became full-time reservists. But but I thought, you know, I came to the sort of point of view of, no, that was what I did in my life. That was fantastic. It taught me this. Now how am I going to make a success of the rest of my life? Mm. Um, some people didn't find it quite as easy.
1: Yeah. So how did you decide what but to do But I think next? the other
0: thing, Simon, was that, Sorry.
1: No, go ahead. The other thing, please.
0: Sorry, I missed the question. No, sorry. go
1: ahead. The other thing, please. Please. Oh, well, I was only going to say
0: that. The, yeah, sorry. It was, it was also the fact that it wasn't just the job. I think people, you know, who haven't been in the military. Obviously, you were aware because your father was in the RAF. Is that the, the military provides you with everything? You know, it provides your home. Your social life is with your colleagues in the officers' mess. You'll go on holiday or expeditions in sport with them. You know, it's very much a sort of cocoon world. So the moment you're no longer part of that world you know, your friends drift away, you've got to find a house, you've got to find a home, you you know, the whole thing changes. And and, uh, so it was an entire life that suddenly lost its purpose and its interaction, not just the job, so to speak.
1: I've got uh, one friend who uh, is in a relationship with someone in the army, and it sounds quite tough. You know, basically their partner, they just had a baby and the partner has uh, to go off for six months service in Iraq yeah. so they basically have a new baby and she's on her own with the yeah. new baby and, and just, it just I can't comprehend it yeah. um, it's not, not going away for one day or even a, well, a weekend I mean, it's, it's quite, no. a, quite I mean, a crazy I think, life
0: I mean that is it, you know it is tough and it's tough on the families so yeah. I decided with my wife um, you know we decided we want to get married and we had a decision to make in that we could either have the marriage before I was deployed somewhere um, or wait until I came back. And actually, we made a, sort of made a decision that if you're married, you get paid extra money when your partner is away. So, yeah, okay. we, we chose to get married at a particular time, and two weeks later, well, two and a half weeks later, I went off to the Falklands for six months. Wow. And then in the first three years of our married life, um, for the first three years of our married life, I was away for something like 18 months in three years. Mm. And, you know, Northern Ireland as well and things like that. And of course, in those days, you didn't have mobile phones were no such things that hadn't been invented. Mm -hmm. So you could only write to each other. So you get a letter every few days. That was the only way you could communicate because you're on the other side of the world or somewhere. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it's no easier today the separation, even if there are mobile phones and things. But yeah It's know, funny, it's, isn't it? It's, it's some, a different
1: world. Sometimes yeah. we're talking about the past. It really does feel like we're talking about a hundred years ago. We really are only talking about twenty years ago. <laughs> you know, like the concept of not having the internet. This is crazy, isn't it? And not having a phone to ring someone yeah. whenever you want. To be honest, sometimes I'd be happy not to have my phone. I feel we're all too way accessible now too accessible these days. But <laughs> well, too-
0: Well I remember one Christmas I was away on the other side of the world and uh, I don't know, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of us trying to queue up on Christmas day to phone our families and I got up early thinking I got up early and I got up at 5.30 in the morning to join this queue and when I got to the queue there was like 150 people phoning from two phones. And uh, eventually I got there probably three hours later or something, I'm just sitting there. And when I got through and phoned my wife, the phone was engaged. <laughs> it was extraordinary because <laughs> she was speaking to her parents, you know, and I thought, ah, you know, people wouldn't believe it nowadays. You know, it was just extraordinary. But it, it, it,
1: it kind of reminds me of a um, prison. Well, not that I've been to prison, but, you know, it sounds like what prison's like from the movies where people queue up yeah. to, uh, you know, that's... Yeah, but it's it's interesting. I noticed from your next step, you know, it, it, it's um, and I think this all leads you to being an entrepreneur. It's why I love I love talking about people's history. But you know, you, you then took on a role as development director and chief executive at the University of London, uh, Liverpool. Sorry. Um, what 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 was the yeah. rationale behind that 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 next step? Um,
0: so it was quite straightforward, actually. Most people like me, most young captains, unless they had a sort of family estate to go back to or whatever, actually tended to head towards the city. So they tended to have, you know, use the regimental ties it was then, get the connections and go into foreign exchange, metal exchange, you know, money trading, you know, the stock exchange or whatever. And I didn't because I'd been in banking before the army for a few years and I found it dull. Um, And actually, because my wife also originated from Shropshire, we decided we were going to raise a family. We wanted to do it near our families in the rural environment that we'd both grown up in. So I took it. My wife could work anywhere. Basically, she's a medical scientist um but i took a job which was to try and get us near a shropshire so the job in liverpool allowed me to live in chester or to us to live in chester which is just down the road from families and it was taken therefore as a what appeared to be an interesting job Uh, i might be able to apply my skills of communication and um, see where i'd land and I, i had no idea that it would lead where it eventually did but it was a, it was a good landing stage and within a couple of years they'd made me the ceo and then within a couple of years of that I was headhunted into a, a local authority which was a different experience again not one that was particularly good because it wasn't entrepreneurial but um all that experience led me in the right direction to join the prince of wales's organisations and uh, gradually get that experience
1: so how did you end up coming the md of the prince of wales um uh... It's called the Director of Programs and Business mm. in the Community Programme, program, right? So so how how did that yeah. happen?
0: So in the first instance, I actually just applied for a job. Um, so there was a job which was uh, within the parent organisation called Business in the Community and it was to run the northwest of England. And this is the Prince of Wales's charity which was the one that engaged business on their impact on society. And I did that for a couple of years and I turned that region around. I didn't realize um, when I applied, but it was a region was failing. It was losing money, uh, member companies, the big companies that were members of the organization were leaving. It was in a right state. And uh, I really managed to turn it around very very quickly, but then I got headhunted again. Um, so the regional di- uh, regional development agencies then existed, and they wanted a director of enterprise, and I was being headhunted for that. And so the chief executive of the setup in London said, "No, um, John, there's a job coming up in London, which is the Prince of Wales's managing director, and we'd like you to have it because I had done a lot with the Prince of Wales, particularly around the rural areas of the northwest." post the foot-and-mouth crisis in 1999-2000. And so, um, you know, I had organised visits for the Prince of Wales. I had organised events down at Clarence House at Highgrove. I, you know, engaged business around the agenda whatever. So it's sort of proven by accident um, that I could do this job. And uh, so the job was never advertised. I was sort of tapped on the shoulder, offered it as a great opportunity, and... Um, and then the portfolio built out over the years, uh, covering a great many different princely concerns. And then, of course, it led once I, I had my own business. That didn't really stop. In fact, it you know I, I did as much with the prince over then seven years as his special representative after I'd left his organisation. So it was a it was a great relationship.
1: Yeah. Is it where you learned purpose? Do you think that's the first time, or did you have it? Did you already have this concept from your? Army days, or was it something that you realised over time that was important to you?
0: Well, I mean, purpose. Yeah, I mean, purpose in business is one thing. Personal purpose and how that aligns with the organisation you're in is another. I could only recognise it by looking back across my life. So, probably around 2015, quite late on, I I was increasingly with my business I had the commercial side but I also used it to fund my philanthropic work and I started to reflect I suppose as one does when one gets older well what's my legacy in life what am I doing and I was very proud of certain things that I'd done under the Prince's patronage I've created big education programs I've created a program that covered 20 countries and then I looked at it I realized that when there was a sense of purpose for me and it aligned with the purpose of the organisation. That's where I did my best work. That's where everybody around me was happiest. That's where probably my family was happiest. Everything was aligned and it worked. Um, but undoubtedly, I could see that that goes right the way back to the army. So when I was working for Lloyds Bank originally, it was a very good job. It was well paid. It was safe. It was comfortable, Etc. Etc. But it didn't fuel any sense of purpose in me at all. So the first sense of purpose was when I was in the army, where I believed that I was doing some good in the world, that I had the same value set of the people around me, that we could see the impact of what we were doing. And there was a pride in all the culture that we had and the heritage, etc. And, you know, when you look back over life, if you can see that alignment, then certainly from my perspective, I could see that being when I was most content and where I did my best work.
1: Now, it should be mentioned that you are John O'Brien MBE. And uh, I, I think, I, I, what's it like to get an MBE? And, and how does it, how does how that happen?
0: Well, it's a very modest award. So I don't, you know, I mean, it's just a fact. I suppose that over the years, one does things and, and what will happen is that people will, uh, you, you never really know who, who's going to recommend you or anything of that kind. So it comes out of the blue. You get a letter out of the blue, which will come from the Cabinet Office, and it will say that, uh, you know, the Prime Minister... I mean, basically, you get a letter, I believe, that says the Prime Minister um, is of a mind, <laughs> you know, they use this sort of strange language, is of a mind to recommend to the Queen that you be made you know made a member of the British Empire or whatever it is. And then you're asked whether or not that would be something you'd like to accept or not. Um, I, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it's... It's a great thrill and all the rest of it.
1: Must have been a lovely Uh, moment.
0: I've been around honours. Yes, I mean, it it is, and there's no two ways about it. I I mean, I guess it's not the only medal that I have for obvious reasons, but um, and I've been around a lot of people, you know, almost all of many, many of my friends have honours and awards, and, and, you know, I suppose you reflect on whether or not you've done anything exceptional to warrant that, but I also know that... um, you know, it was a, the, the, the person most proud was my mother. Mm. You know, I, I am a very simple person from the sticks of Shropshire with no great education, don't have any qualifications, you know, started life profoundly deaf, couldn't speak properly, things of that kind. For her to come with me to the palace Prince of Wales got in touch. Well, not him personally. His office got in touch and said that they were delighted and would I be pleased enough for him to make the award given our previous relationship? And so that was a great thrill. Um, and we had a lovely day as a family going and receiving that award. So um,
1: yeah. Well, I think it's um, it, you, you. Yeah, yeah it i I've enjoyed reading about your history. You know, and you created several youth and leadership programs um, that made a big impact. You know, so so these things I think are. Um, a small gesture to to thank good people, and uh, so I I really I really respect it. And um, looking looking at the so, I guess when you when you sold your company, so just moving forward a little bit in the history um, of your life experiences. So t- tell us a little bit about what it was like to sell a company, and and what kind of happened next.
0: Mm. So unlike yourself, Simon, you obviously were incredibly successful in yours. My I, I call it more of an exit really to a great extent. I mean I did sell my share of the business. But what I I owned sixty percent of the agency that I'd created. Um, in twenty seventeen well, back end of 2016, 2017, people were coming from other bigger companies to explore what I created because many of their clients were moving into this purpose space. So I was getting I had three or four inquiries from big international companies actually. But the one that most interested me was Omnicom, um, which is obviously you know a tremendous network of, of agencies, and they made a great offer to to move the business into into Omnicom. Um, it so happened, and I don't you know absolutely nothing negative to my co-founders and, and partners, but the co-founders and partners were, um, were were XWPP, which is a rival to Omnicom. And they did not wish to go, they, they didn't see that the offer from Omnicom was really what they wanted, etc. So they had another business. And so effectively, over a period of time, a couple of months, I realised that the best way around this blockage was for me to see whether or not I could exit from my 60% for my other partners to take that business over. And if Omnicom still wanted me, they would get certain assets with me. So some of the staff team of my agency moved with me to Omnicom, mm-hmm. Um, my IP moved with me to Omnicom, and a network that I had separately, which was a purpose-driven leaders, moved into Omnicom, and that created the core of the 100 agency, which is this consortium. But it also had suddenly that purpose expertise in place. My old agency carried on parallel to an agency which my other co-founders also had, and then was gradually absorbed by by the other agency. So. It wasn't conventional in the way that possibly your own was. But I suppose some of the sentiment that one goes through is, you know, what value do you get from that experience? And also how you, you also address the sentiment of, you know, handing over or leaving or handing over control of something you've created. Mm. Um, You know, you have to be prepared to walk away from that and and say, well, that was that and and it's an entity rather than your own. Let's move on and build something new again.
1: Mm. As always, John, um, and for the audience uh, listening, I've had the pleasure to get to know John through hanging out on Clubhouse together. Um, and during lockdown, Clubhouse, a lot of people on there became close friends. And I, I, I really respected John uh, listening to his insights and knowledge shares on, on Clubhouse. And I, and I say this very sensitively, so, so as not to offend uh, John, but I, I find this, this uh, you're always very authentic John. and i and I, I mean that as a compliment because i know sometimes there is a there is a sense that you you, you know on clubhouse in particular for those that don't know on there sometimes people do stand up on stage and say you know i've exited my company and i you know i sold my last company to oh, whoever and now I'm, I'm doing this and i'm so <laughs> successful and and actually it's the detail that's really the interesting and so john you've always done a great job of of being very authentic and sharing it and 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 i and i appreciate what you've just explained there and i don't want to recap it in the wrong way but i want people to pick up something here that i think is important i i I interpret what you've said about your experience there this way and tell me if i'm wrong that you had a good business um, but you felt like you wanted to go in a different direction to the ones that your partners had. No one was right, no one was wrong. There was no direction that was right or wrong. You know, going Omnicom or going WPP, everyone's got a preference, right? Mm. But you made a call that going in the right direction was more important to you than necessarily just financial. And I think that's really important that people realize that because I do know a lot of people who have businesses that are a little bit stuck, especially with their partners, because they're trying to hold on to the value of the business instead of seeing the value and doing what they want to do every day. Yeah. Is that a fair interpretation of the experience? Yes. I, well,
0: it, no. Well, it is, Simon. And to be honest, uh, you know, there's there's no point pretending to be something that you're not. I, I I've been very fortunate with the. i, I was very fortunate with the partners that I had in the business. I would never want that to. Come out through this at all in any other shape or form. It was, as you say, just a difference in opinion about what the value of the business was and what the value represented to them, in contrast to what the value potentially with OmniCom meant to me. And, and so um, and also the different cultures that would exist. You know, there is a different culture in a big global entity to a small entity. So I think the best way to think about this is that I'm probably um, I'm probably. worst type of example of somebody in business, I have to say, because um, even when I was running my own business, it was more of a vehicle for interesting work and also actually funded philanthropic campaigns as opposed to me thinking I was going to become a multimillionaire out of it. That was never my intention. And that is just the fact possibly because I was older and that actually I was fairly content with what I've you know, achieved in life and things of this kind. It wasn't the prime driver to create um, some sort of huge, you know, massively uh, valued business. Mm-hmm. And, and that was shown by the fact that, you know, some people could almost say, well, it's a hobby business. It wasn't really a hobby business. It was incredibly important for my income levels, et cetera. But I compromised throughout by thinking, well, I'll only be in London a couple of days a week where the business operates because I've had so much time away from home from my family. I wanted to spend more time at home and I turned clients down. You know, if they, would, if they were, let's say, more difficult as clients or required more overseas travel, which at one point it definitely did, I just chose because I didn't want that lifestyle demand at that age to pursue every piece of work coming down. So I, I have absolutely no doubt that there was probably frustration from my partners that we could have probably created more revenue, we probably could have created more profit as well. Um, but the challenge that I had was that, you know, frankly, most of that delivery was was being done by me mm. because it was my knowledge that was sought in the room, et cetera. So if, if for example, one of our high net worth clients arrived in London unexpectedly on a Friday and said to me, "Well, John, I'm here. You know, they'd send me a message saying, John, I'm in London stopping over. I'm at the Dorchester for two days. Come and have breakfast with me on Sunday. Well, I'm three and a half hours away in Shropshire. I can't, you know, you have to make a choice then whether or not you're going to jump to the tune of that type of client who doesn't really appreciate and really doesn't care where you are or what you're going to do but may pay well, or you just turn around and say, these are not for me, and I can do without the money. And, and you know, most people in business probably wouldn't behave in that way, I suspect, when they're growing a business, et cetera, but it wasn't. The, the nature of the work has always been more important to me, as long as I can meet my financial needs. It's been the nature of the work and the people I work with that's been most important. It so, uh, <laughs> may not be some of the lessons that your, your listeners no, I, wish I, to hear,
1: I, I, I think it's
0: partly because of my motivation, yet.
1: I actually think, John, it's a very important point of view, and uh, I I I I, uh, I I disagree with you that it's not um, good business. I I actually think it is. I think it, what what you're describing is something a lot of people don't do, and I think they should, which is understand what they really want from success. What is success, right? That's what you're talking about. Is that you've defined it for yourself. The purpose, and then having time with your family, having that time to do things that you you enjoy doing with purpose, and I and I and I think that's something a lot of people don't do, and they end up. And I've I've got a family member like this uh, who who basically has chased the scale and the money, and they got lost somewhere in that. Um, they 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 uh, they did make the decision to meet that person on a Sunday. And, and and frankly, I think that's why they got divorced. And and uh, you know, and I think right. that this is this in this pursuit of the perceived success, the Instagram success, I guess we could call it today. Um, it it, it mm-hmm. something is getting lost in in what actual success is. And I think your message, John, and your story, and your history, and your efforts, um, I, I think are a very important lesson for people to kind of you know who you are, and you haven't got distracted by social media as perhaps people are today and, and i think that's quite important it's a very important message and i appreciate you sharing it
0: well i mean everybody everybody has to find their own path rust it. and um but i do think you know with the benefit of being perhaps like a little bit longer <laughs> in the tooth as i would say or you know a little bit older you look back on your life and think of all the things that you could chase and this that, and the other and sometimes you realize after the event they're just not worth it mm. you know i mean i've had much bigger houses than I have now. I've had much flashier cars and things of this kind. There's no way that I'm, but I'm better off than I've ever been, but I know exactly how much I need, how much do I need to consume? Where do I want to spend my time? Who is it that I want to actually be with? And interestingly, to be fair to Omnicom, when I moved into Omnicom and there were two, there were two reasons that I went in, and there's another lesson in this. One is that of course, when you are running a business, and I was running it. I mean, I had partners, but basically it very much rested on my shoulders and the thinking that I took in there, et cetera. Um, that is a big burden. You know, you know, Simon, it all comes down to you. And it wasn't always rosy. In those years, there had been times where I would look at the books and think, you know, actually, I've got to pay everybody else this month, but I've got to go back to my life and tell that for the next three months, possibly things are going to be a bit thin, you know. And so you have all that burden. Um, and undoubtedly, you know, having proven to myself that I could make that transition from the nonprofit space into setting my own business up to then be invited to go into a much bigger global business and have some of that, that pressure taken away, that was attractive. But to be perfectly frank, what I also was interested in was that with my own little agency at the maximum, I think we had nine people in, you know, as a team, I could only ever do projects of a certain size. I could only ever influence certain types of organisations and things, even though we had some big clients. Um, you know, like had and Axe and bell and me Boots on their global brands. So it was only, there was a scale of project that we could cope with. The opportunity to go into a big organisation with hundreds of offices around the world, 75,000 people, the biggest clients you can imagine, meant that I could try and influence the good, I hope, work across many, many a much broader and bigger size scale of projects and that was the other attractive aspect of that um but um so different times your you know one's motivation will change and the motivation to have, to go to a bigger scale was actually the opportunity that uh that changed my mind there mm.
1: i think this is another great point i know a lot of people um I, they think of starting a business on their own. And, I, and that's what I'm encouraging that. I think there's also an element of, you know, realizing that if you look back at say even Elon Musk, Elon Musk had a business idea called X. And then he saw Peter Thiel and the guys at PayPal doing PayPal. And instead of doing it on his own, he joined forces with them, right? And that kind of one plus one equals 11. I feel like in a way you're illustrating that that you know, sometimes you can you can work on your own, you can build it on your own, or you can team up with someone else, or, or who's got the scale but is delivering it on your purpose and allows you to be more effective. It's an interesting learning, there, isn't there?
0: I, I'm a great, I'm I'm a great believer in that. I mean, collaboration is the key. You've got to be careful about how you choose people, and you've got to be absolutely wise in terms of the structure of your your governance and your shareholdings and all of that sort of stuff. And I I think that you know, the, actually over so many different things. I mean, for example, you know, I chose to write my, my book, The Power of Purpose, with somebody who would be perfectly happy to be a ghostwriter with me. But I said, no, I want your name on the cover with me, Andrew, and um, we're going to do this together and we'll have the joint, you know, because I was paying him to help me write that. Um, and it, when we wrote it 50-50. Uh, and this latest book, Truth Be Told, I went to a colleague and I said, look, I think, David, you know, you've got knowledge that complements my own you know, have you ever considered writing a book? Well, he considered it, but hadn't made that next step. Well, we did it last year. And if you talk to him at any time, he will say that for the first book, as particularly, he found it immensely helpful to be doing it for somebody who'd done it before. And yes, actually, I found it immensely helpful to have somebody else walking alongside me on that journey as well, because, you know, you have the ability then to have a shared um, ability to think about the problems and think about the projects or respond to things that occur in any business. So if you can find the right partners, then I would recommend it. Totally. But you, you, you have to also open, enter into those relationships with, you know, clear and open eye, so to speak.
1: You have to drop ego, which a lot of people can't do. I think you know, it'd be tempting to like the book is all about you, John, and what, and and have your name on yeah. the front of it, right? So you ought to have a certain humility, uh, humility to do that. I think it's very um, powerful when you do. I good advice for people listening. I, 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 um, the truth be told, the book launch probably one of my favourite book launches ever in in lockdown. Um, MC Hammer was there. Yeah. I mean, uh, I got I got to talk yeah. to MC Hammer. I was I was uh, it was pretty pretty kind of like a I I I kind of a childhood dream. I think I want to say, but um, but what? How do you know him? What's the connection there?
0: Well, I mean, this is this is a remarkable thing. So this is all due to Clubhouse. Um, I think what's fascinating when you talk about social media and things of that kind is I, I'm probably a slightly unlikely. Um, Proponent of Clubhouse, given age and all this, that and the other. And indeed, I had friends who said to me, you're making a fool of yourself, John. Well, I couldn't give two hoops, frankly. I mean, I've been locked away in my nice little village in a beautiful home in a beautiful part of the country. But normally, you know, I've spent 20 years networking and going to lots of events and things in London, New York, or wherever. So when this app was shared with me and I went in, I found the ability to go and explore conversations, come into rooms like you were creating Simon and, and, you know, meet other people that I'd not otherwise met. Fantastic. But there's a great story in here because I know you often talk about luck and things like that. I'm a great believer that actually one of the key components of luck is one's willingness to talk to people and talk to lots of people, because that means then that you've got lots of connections that can suddenly turn around and say, oh, here's a spare ticket. Do you want to come? You know, people think they're lucky. Well, you know, if you have 100 friends, you've got 100 chances more than if you've only got one friend to get the spare ticket order. Um, and it it happened in this extraordinary situation. I was on a platform. I can't remember what room it was. Somebody asked a question, which I responded to. And then about three people down uh, was a chap called Keith Grossman. Uh, and when he came to ask his question, uh, he commented on my response. And he commented very, you know, he said, I think that's a great response. So I looked at his profile he had two lines. And it said, president of time board member of New York Cares. I thought, well, I have no idea what president of time means. But New York Cares is an NGO in New York about volunteering, which I was uh, aware of 20 years ago almost, and then took the idea and rolled it out across the UK as part of a team that did it there. So I commended him for being on that board. Well, within 24 hours, he'd reached out to me across Twitter I then realized that he was actually the president of Time Magazine, which is the equivalent of the CEO of Time Magazine, based in New York, answers personally to Mark Benioff. We struck up a rapport and a conversation. In fact, I've got another Zoom call with him uh, next week. You know, we, we communicate regularly. But a few days after that, I was on Clubhouse and he pinged me into a room. The moment I went in the room, he pinged me up on stage. There were only about six of us on stage, and I found myself sitting next to MC Hammer. (laughs) So we got into a conversation. And the next minute, I find that MC and I are connecting off Clubhouse in different forms. We find that we're both born in the same year. We both served in the military because he used to be in the U.S. Navy. And we both seemed to have, uh, you know, different, similar views on things. I then ended up going in his rooms. He ended up inviting me to various things. He then downloaded the digital book in advance of it being launched. thought it was so great he started tweeting about it. He then started buying the book to give it away to people, which he's still doing. And just through our rapport, when I said, look, we're doing a a book launch, he came along. But the remarkable thing, Simon, is, you know, when I did the last book launch, it was 100 people on a roof garden at Pearson's in the Strand in London, overlooking the Thames, all very nice. You know, uh, we gave everybody, you know, a glass of champagne and a free book. I don't think it resulted in anything, frankly, for the book. But on Clubhouse, we had 2,811 people in the room. We had 90 people on stage. It ran for three hours, and we sold a lot of books and had a good time. And it it begs the question, why would you ever go back to the old type of book launch if you could get the sort of thing that we just saw there? Everybody thought it was great, and a lot of people bought books.
1: Yeah, I might I might not have got invited to the strand, I feel, um, if it, if that technology hadn't come to the forefront, if lockdown hadn't happened. And I wouldn't have had the experience of being on stage with you and, and those other 89 people that day. So and I, and I had a, a thoroughly good time. So but um, John, look, I mean, I, I'm conscious uh, that we only have you for a short amount of time. I, I absolutely love uh, your insights your way of thinking your humbleness yet frankly the, the amazing things that you've you've done and uh, I, I just wanted to I guess wrap up really and, and ask you if you went back to the younger John and gave some advice what would it be?
0: Um, I'm often asked this as so many people are I, I have worried too much about what people think about me for far too long and I probably still do now but I was raised in a household where my father insisted that we had a public front that you know everybody you know had to get a certain message uh, a certain indication of how we were as a family et etc et etc and so I just grew up with a mentality that you had to be incredibly conscious of what people thought of you and that meant that that would shape your behavior to fit in and uh, that's the biggest mistake out so you know for younger people embarking on their lives obviously be respectful and be you know courteous and things of that kind but don't doubt yourself don't try and be somebody you're not. Don't worry too much about people who might say you know, things about you because um, you know, you're going to be the best that you can be and uh, you, know, you shouldn't worry about what other people say because that will only constrain you from being that best.
1: Well said. John, thank you so much for taking time to share your knowledge with us. I appreciate you and uh, it's been nice to chat to you again today.
0: It's been lovely to chat, Simon. Thank you so much and, and good luck with the rest of the, the projects. But it's talk.